Well, good morning. Y'all can sit down. How we doing? That's pretty weak. We're outside. Use your outside voice. Well, it is good to see you. Um, I cannot remember the first time I heard my kids use the phrase, it's not fair. Any parents? You ever heard that? Yeah. If, if your kids are so small you haven't heard that yet, don't worry. It's coming. And um, so I have four kids. They're, they're mostly grown now, um, but it hasn't stopped. It's not fair. It hasn't stopped. Early on, I think the first time we recognized it was around bedtime, right? Because if you're the oldest, you get to go to bed a little later, and somewhere in the, in the rhythm of things, the younger kids, it's not fair that they get to stay up. And then as they get older, it revolves around chores and things like that. And uh, even uh, for us, some of you, uh, like if you're sitting in the sun today, my people, you may be thinking, it's not fair. I didn't get shade. Sometimes the idea of it's not fair can be a little more serious. We may look around and see people that are that we would classify as pagan or wicked or certainly not followers of Christ and they are thriving. Right? They've got uh, a lot of money. You may be struggling financially. Uh, maybe they've got all the health in the world and you're, uh, you have some physical issues and you're looking at that saying, you know, I've been trying to follow Jesus and I'm suffering and the wicked people aren't. It's not fair. I think all of us can relate to that. Well, Psalm 73 um, deals with that issue, and it doesn't tackle it from some ivory tower of philosophy, but instead from the real life in the ditches experience. The Psalms are refreshingly honest, right? They don't hold anything back. We're in Psalm 73 today, and in Psalm 73, uh, it's written by Asaph, and uh, he's brutally honest. And what we learn is that um, praise does not come without a struggle. God is good is not just some cliche. But it's a mature conviction grounded in experience. Uh, the Russian author Dostoevsky said, um, It is not as a child that I believe and confess Christ. My Hosanna is born of a furnace of doubt. Psalm 73 comes out of that furnace. So if you have Psalm 73 in front of you, I want to read it. Beginning in verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant 
when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one wakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your gathered church, for your people. Lord, as we look at uh, the content of this ancient poem, Lord, I pray that you would use uh, the teaching of your word and the Holy Spirit to draw us to the conclusion that Asaph comes to, that you are good and you mean good to us. You are good to your church and to those who are pure in heart. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Asaph starts out pretty strong, right? Verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, those who are pure in heart. That's a great, he should just stop right there. But it has not always been that great for him. Look at verse 2, he says, as for me, my feet almost stumbled, my steps nearly slipped. Recently, apparently, he has almost lost his faith. He's almost slipped around him. And this, this may be where you are at this moment. Around him, he sees irreligious, self-centered people who enjoy peace and prosperity. For them, all is well. Health and uncommon happiness. 
was there. And, and he's thinking to himself, what, what is the secret to their success? It's obviously not good spiritual lives, right? They brazenly flaunt their arrogance, right? They have this habit of riding roughshod over others' rights. Uh, I, I love uh, one translation says their beady eyes bulged through folds of fat as they plot and scheme. They have this air of superiority about them. They engage in malicious talk and threats. They dictate their orders and they dismiss God as irrelevant. Was not God the most high? Is it, where is he? Is he just too transcendent to care? That kind of theology makes you basically a functional atheist. And Asaph looks at them and he begins to envy. At the root of his struggle is envy. See it in verse 3? I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph looks at his own lack of material possession and he thinks that's the source of his trouble. He says, man, if I could just have what they have, I want what they've got, I would be happier. His desires are obviously wrong. He's thinking that money is going to solve his problems. Possessions are going to solve his problems. That health is going to solve his problem. See, in that kind of thinking, here's what's at stake. Here's what's at stake at the life's not fair worldview. It's a complaint against God's goodness and his sovereignty. While he's envying the wicked, what he's really doing is he's questioning whether or not God is really good and is he really in control. Because if God is good and he is in control, why would he allow his people to suffer while the evil prosper? When, when we think God isn't fair, it leads us to question the benefits of following him. And you see it here in verse 13. He says, in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Can you, does that resonate with you on some level? In vain. God, I am following you for no reason. The wicked are thriving and I am suffering. Verse 14. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. See, Asaph has fallen into this trap that thinking God is out to get him. He's under this false belief, this false notion that if God is good, he can't allow affliction and suffering to touch the life of the righteous. What he doesn't realize is that the suffering that he is saying is not fair was actually a blessing. And the prosperity of the wicked is really a curse. I think it's important to take a little moment here to talk about the 
the doctrine of suffering, right? You, uh, you rolled out of bed this morning hoping you were going to get to hear something about suffering, right? Suffering is a gift from God. That sounds nuts, doesn't it? There's an all-too-common theme, sometimes it's prominent in Christian circles, one that's almost identical to the thinking of Asaph here that, that leads him to almost slip and lose his way. It's the mentality that God's blessings always come in the form of financial success, material abundance, and physical health. We are led to believe that the righteous can claim such things as their rightful possession. We're also told that when we experience suffering or affliction or trouble, that it's, it's because you just don't have enough faith. And we convince ourselves that a good God would never cause any of His saints sorrow. Well, that, my friend, is not what the Bible teaches. It's rather a doctrine that Satan himself has used since the garden. When he slithers up to Eve, actually he walks up to Eve, I think. He has to slither after the curse. When he comes to Eve in the garden, he suggests that, hey, Eve, you know, a good God wouldn't withhold such pleasant fruit from you and the knowledge of good and evil. Then he's certain that Job would turn his back on God if God would stop allowing him to prosper. Satan even uses this tactic with Jesus in the wilderness. When he takes Jesus up on the mountain and shows him, hey, I'll give you all these kingdoms. I'll give you all the wealth, all the power, all the prestige. And we know Jesus took the road of suffering. Adversity and suffering is a tool God uses to get rid of the things that draw us away from him. Think about it. Joseph sold into slavery, not because of sin of his own, but because his brother's. The Israelites spent 400 years in captivity, not so much as punishment, but for preparation. God was getting them ready to be his people. A lot of scholars believe the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Now think about this. If that's true, if it's the oldest book in the Bible, then one of the first truths that God wanted man to know and understand is this. God uses suffering sometimes to accomplish His purpose. If you can't say amen, say ouch. But the suffering's temporary for the saints. And anyone who thinks that God's people have the right to experience express or to expect a trouble-free life of ease and prosperity apparently is not reading the entire bible 
Suffering is one of the central themes of the Bible. If, think about this. If knowing God is the highest good in this life, and then we have, we have to come to this conclusion. Whatever draws us away from Him is evil, and whatever draws us closer to Him is good. And a lot of times that's suffering. And those of us who've been through that furnace of suffering know that. You come out on the other side of it and know Christ is enough. So how did, how did Asaph, if you stop at verse 14, I mean, it's bad, right? If you stop there, it's time to seal the windows, turn on the gas. That's a joke. But he feels that way, right? How does he keep from throwing all of it away? How's he saved from the brink? One of the ways is his fellow believers. You see it in verse 15? If I had said, I will speak thus. So he's thinking, man, if I... If I if I get out in public and I pronounce verses 2 through 14 to God's people, man, I, I will betray his people. Here's the reality. The fellowship with his brothers in the faith checked him from the conclusion that his human logic dictates. We have an obligation to one another. To encourage one another. Paul says to the Thessalonians, therefore encourage one another, build one another up. The, the, the gathering of God's people is sometimes the grappling hook God uses to pull us back from the edge. But, but he's still a pretty good ways off. Verse 16, it seemed a wearisome task. What Asaph is saying here is, man, it is just exhausting sometimes to follow Jesus and to live righteous and to try to do the right thing when the culture is just going berserk and it looks like they're thriving and prospering and the coin that I am getting rewarded with is just pain. It's just wearisome. I want you to see a little word here, though. Until. Verse 17. Until. It's those little words sometimes we skip over that have the most uh, influence. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. And during the worship service, he discovers What the hymn writer William Cooper said is the light which surprises the Christian when he sings. The experience of worship is a perspective-shifting thing. To gather with God's people and sing and sit under the teaching of the Word and pray together and fellowship together. It shifts our perspective away from us and away from, from what we think is going wrong in the world. If, if just for a moment, 
When Asaph enters the sanctuary and worships, the scales fall from his eyes, and he gets the perspective of God. It changes. He took what his heart knew deep inside, that God is good to Israel and those that are pure in heart. And he begins to apply it to the irreligious and immoral contemporaries of his culture. He sees that the lives that he was jealous of are empty and temporary pleasures. The wicked are on quicksand. Verse 21, he confesses his former blindness as to this relationship he has with God as a believer. He says, I, I was like a beast, just following my, my, uh, my desires, my passions, my lust. I was like a beast. I wasn't thinking like a rational creature made in the image of my creator. He realizes he belongs to God, and God it is who holds him in a strong grip. Verses 23 and 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. God has Asaph. Listen, listen. If you're in the middle of some sort of affliction or suffering right now, hear this. God has you. That verse 23, you need to hear that. I am continually, continually with you. You are with God. He holds your right hand. Our relationship with a loving God ultimately results in our good. It may not be in this lifetime, in this temporary world. You realize this is all temporary, right? None of this is going to last. The realization that God's continual presence and His goodness leads Him to make one of, the, one of the great declarations in the whole Bible. This is one of those, this is one of those cross-stitch verses, right? Put it on coffee mugs. Who have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Who have I in heaven but you? The, it's a rhetorical question. Nobody but God. The sustainer in heaven. When he realizes who God is and the hold that God has on him, he's, he's more prepared, right, to face the present existence he's in. He's ready to grow old, right? And experience failing health and maybe financial failure. But I, because God is his strength, his portion, and his refuge. The rock of Israel is present with him, protecting him, guiding him.
Verse 28. It is, as for me, it is good to be near God. What a contrast, right? From verse 2. That's a long way to travel in 28 verses, right? I almost slipped. I almost walked away. And the reason he almost walks away is envy. You see in verse 3, I was envious. See, what happens to us when we begin to envy the world around us, look at the world around us, judge everything that's happened to us by somebody else, we begin to envy. And it, and it leads us down a road where we doubt God. But we don't have to stay there. As for me, it is good to be near God. Look, look at the difference between verse 28 and verse 2. As for me, my feet had almost slipped. It's a complete turnaround. He had been upheld by his God. Whose presence he had experienced in the sanctuary. His response is that he's got this renewed commitment by making God his refuge and praising his deeds and telling people about the deeds of his God. Envy has turned to hope. And God's goodness to Israel as a whole, as a community, has uh, come down to an individual level. It's good for us to gather together because we see, hey, we're not alone God's good to us as a church, but do you, do you feel in every fiber of who you are right now that God is good to you? Early Asaph's trouble stems from the fact that he is following God for what God can give him. When he sees that the wicked had more good things than he did, he becomes disillusioned. But now, now he sees God is the treasure. God is the treasure. We, we just sang it. Christ is enough. The nearness of God is my good. Can you say that? It's not just the psalmist. Think about the Apostle Paul. Listen to this. In, in the letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Starting to get the theme? In toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, apart from other things, there's this daily pressure for the anxiety of all the churches. 
Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. I was seized in Damascus. I was let down in a basket through a window. Paul Paul goes on and he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited. Don't miss that. To keep me from thinking I'm all that. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me. Why, why? So Paul's understanding of this affliction and this suffering. What does Paul say? It was given to me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times. Three times. Now it doesn't mean Paul's not praying. God please take this away. Don't hear me say that. You, you ought, if you're in suffering and affliction right now, you ought to be praying, God, please take this away. Paul says three times he did it. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. So that the power of Christ may rest on me. When I am weak, I am strong. Paul says again in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? God, you have, you have my right hand. Who's going to separate us? Tribulation? Distress? No, Paul says. No. In all of these things, all the suffering, all the affliction, we are more than conquerors. I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation. Do you know, what, you know what that all creation means? All creation. Everything. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Hear this. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus. Who have I in heaven but you? Can you can you say that this morning? Can we say that as a church? We look around and the world is going nuts. And we might be tempted to slip and stumble. But hear Asaph say today, it is good for me to be near God. In his sermon on these verses, Jonathan Edwards closes the sermon by asking five questions. I I had to re... I'm going to borrow two of them. If you've read Edwards, buckle up if you haven't. So here are the two questions. I I want you to think about these two questions before we leave today. First, what is it which chiefly makes you desire to go to heaven when you die? 
is the main reason that you may be with God. Have communion with Him. Be conformed to Him. Let me say it again. What is the chief reason you desire to go to heaven? Is it to be with God? Second, if you might live here in earthly prosperity to all eternity, but destitute of the presence of God and communion with Him, would you choose this rather than to leave the world in order to dwell in heaven as children of God, there to enjoy the glorious privileges of children in a holy and perfect love to God and enjoyment of Him to all eternity. That sentence was written by a Puritan. Right? Let me bring it down. This is what he's saying. If you could live here on earth and prosper for all eternity, have all the wealth, all the health, and not be in the presence of God, would you choose that over leaving this world to dwell in heaven in the presence of God for all eternity. Let, let those questions sit on you for just a second. If you're struggling today with this it's not fair thing, maybe, it may be because God is not your chief treasure. Asaph wants us to know that the prosperity of the wicked is short-lived and their doom is eternal. But for the righteous, for the pure in heart, the suffering is temporary and the blessings are eternal. The main blessing is to know God and have Him as your treasure forever. Do you know God, can you say with confidence, who, am I, who, who do I have in heaven but you? You're my desire. All I need is you. You are enough. If you can't say that this morning with confidence, know this. Our God came in the form in, in, in his son. He sent his son to live in flesh, to experience what we're experiencing, to see the wicked prosper, and then to suffer and die. He lived the life we could not live, died the death we should have died, so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could know God is enough. God is good. He has been good to his people and to the righteous. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for, again, for this ancient 
song for how honest it is. And God, there's some of us that are in the middle of verses 2 through 14 right now, and we're really close to slipping. God, I pray you would grab their, whoever it is, grab their right hand and let them know you are near. Father, you are good, you are good to us. You are good to us. Lord, protect us from envy and thinking the world has it better than us and help us remember that Jesus is enough. Christ is enough. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You got